presentation. I think, uh, you know, the tax reform that we've all just gone through has got us all confused. And uh, I don't know if any of us have really figured out what it all means. Are you going to be able to itemize your deductions? Will your income taxes go up or down? Uh, estate taxes, will my heirs have to pay? Um, what does it uh, mean for your philanthropy and the uh, charities, including Whitworth, that you support? Well, that's why Paul is here, Paul Viren, and we're pleased to have him. But before Paul comes up, I ask Scott McQuilkin, and he is the Vice President of Institutional Advancement, been here for a long time. We're thrilled he moved from athletics over to advancement, and we just want him to bless our meal and time together. Our gracious God, as we look out the window, we're so blessed to look at what you've created in the sunshine and the trees in the Whitworth campus. We think about and pray for students who are finishing their final exams. We pray for those who are about to graduate and the next season of their lives and what you have in store for them. Pray for families coming here to celebrate and bring them to and from this campus um, safely. And we're thankful for this time that we get to spend with Paul Viren, a wonderful Whitworth alum. We're thankful of what he will share and uh, the questions that he will answer and mindful that everything that we have in, uh, is really treasure that you've provided. Our families, our resources, the places in which we live, it all comes from you through your grace, from your mercy, through your sovereignty, and through your son, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And now to introduce Paul, and I know many of you already know Paul, but we just want to give you a little bit of an introduction. Paul is the owner and president of Viren and Associates, an independent financial services firm based in Spokane. Paul has been providing a broad range of services to his clients for 20 years. His firm has coined the phrase, clear solutions for the chapters of your life, which is the essence of his work. Whether planning and saving for retirement, building a business, providing employee benefits, protecting hard-earned assets, paying for children's college or investing, each of us go through unique chapters in life, and every chapter has a financial aspect. Paul is a graduate of Whitworth, which Scott mentioned, and his wife is as well, Beth, and has received his credentials from the American College as a Chartered Life Underwriter and Chartered Financial Consultant. He's registered as an Investment Advisor Representative, along with Securities Registrations, and I don't have a clue what these mean, 6, 7, 24, 63, and 65, held a, an LPL, Financial and Life and Health Insurance. In 2011, he was nominated by his peers in the Spokane Estate Planning Council to be recognized as an accredited estate planner. He works with his spouse, Beth, and together they have built a successful practice of financial planning managing $200 million in brokerage and advisory assets as of December 31st, 2016. And my guess is that number's gone up. Um, they also provide services to employers and individuals for retirement plans, health insurance, life, disability, and long-term care protection strategies. He is the past president of the Spokane Estate Planning Council and recently completed serving as the president of the National Association of Estate Planners. He is an active member with Spokane Rotary 21 and has served on many boards and civic groups in the community. Paul is an avid backpacker and runner, loves to turn wooden pens from exotic wood from around the world and wine tasting, not at the same time. So, so welcome, Paul. We are thrilled he's here and I'm sure you will enjoy his conversation tonight. Thanks, Holly. Well, we got some work to do tonight, you guys, and I appreciate the chance for us to visit and chat. I, um, I want this to be an engaging, sharing ideas and comments and questions you might have, especially when it comes to uh, the recent tax cut that we um, will be talking about in more detail in a few minutes. I try to wander the room just because as my stomach growls while you're eating, I don't, I, it'll be a distraction for me not to have to 
sit there and smell your wonderful meal and have you enjoy a cookie and have you enjoy some beverages and here I'll be standing in front of you with a growling tummy. I know there is. I may steal it here in a minute. So um, I like to start the meeting off with just why are you here and certainly making sure that what do you hope to learn tonight? What do you hope to accomplish in our visit? So let me just, just scan the room. I'm assuming tax reform and questions about tax reform is on everybody's mind. Is that, is that a yes or no or don't really care? Taxes are taxes. And so a thumbs up over there. What else do we want to learn tonight? What else is on people's minds that we want to make sure we cover in our conversation? Great. Small business, big deal when it comes to the Tax Reform Act. Yes. Great. So fresh questions that might certainly from the standpoint of a philanthropic advisor for Scott and Holly to be able to say, what do I ask my clients now? I'm lost and you're trying to help navigate clients in the philanthropic world and just estate planning in general. And how does this all dovetail with all that? What are the questions that people have when it comes to, yeah. So revocable living trust versus a will, and we'll cover that in great detail as well. That'll be a, that's a great question, and one I get common, when I, a common question I get for these presentations as well in that respect. Other questions people have and want to make sure we cover. Okay, timing of giving, great question about is it even worth giving now money, and what kind of gift do I give, and how does the Tax Reform Act maybe impact those of us that are philanthropic and want to make sure that we're not being dumb in our giving and being wise in our giving. Those are great questions. Anything else before I move on in our conversation? Glenn, you've been quiet there finishing your meal. Are you, what are the questions do you have, sir? Okay, the tax brackets. There are some new tax brackets. We'll cover some of that as well. All right, so let's dive into this. So. The reason we're here is because of philanthropy. I'm assuming that that's a major part of everybody in this room's kind of life is you're giving in some fashion, whether it be tithing or just giving to Whitworth or funding students' education here at the college. Uh, you know, there's a variety of ways that people give. I love the fact that philanthropy is a big part of the room that I'm here. Oftentimes when I, when I speak with, a, with an audience that doesn't have a philanthropic component, it's what I call a two-dimensional view versus a three-dimensional view because I think a three-dimensional philanthropic view is so much more valuable in many ways. So we'll cover that as well tonight. We're going to cover the Tax Reform Act and what that's about and questions we'll be asking there and go through that. We're going to do the estate planning overview and revocable living trust versus wills and powers of attorney and various things we want to make sure our documents are in place and how that works and make sure we're covered there. So let's dive right in. So philanthropy, the power of giving. I, as some of you know, I, I think Holly mentioned this, I worked on staff at Whitworth for a number of years in the alumni office. Uh, and was director of, of giving, uh, annual giving for the institution. Um, and I certainly understand the fact that there are those givers that have a philanthropy gene. And those people that have a philanthropy gene usually live longer than those that don't have a philanthropy gene. I think I've seen Holly nodding her head. Scott, I'm assuming you're seeing it as well. Glenn, how old are you, Glenn? 94, I heard. You, could, you can attest to the fact there's a philanthropy gene that adds to longevity of your life. Is that true? Giving money away adds more value to your, more length to your life and more quality. So I, I, I think that's so absolutely true. And so I think it starts, I think it's appropriate in this audience that tithing, I think, is a big part of that uh, giving. I'm not going to be here to say tithing is not important or is more important now. The challenge I find when it comes to tithing under tax reform is you have to really be generous and without a tax break in many situations. That's going to be the problem for a lot of charitable institutions and churches and, and our communities that need philanthropic support is that there's not going to be the tax benefit as much as there was before if you're not going to itemize your taxes. We'll cover more of that in a moment. I think philanthropy gives us purpose. It gives us drive. It gives us a reason to get up in the morning. I know as I've been blessed and have been able to give that blessing back to the various charities that we support, and I see this across my practice, and I know I speak for Scott and Holly, it's having a purpose, whether it be a scholarship or a church or whatever that cause is, only adds that dimension of purpose to one's life that may be beyond just a selfish view versus a selfless view when it comes to philanthropy. Again, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, so it's just all, all part of that. So sharing, I think, is important, that we're all sharing 
in the bounty that we've been blessed, and I think for those that have been blessed, more is blessed upon them because they're giving back to the community. I just think those are important things. There's obviously the legacy component. I mean, you ask the Coles family what it's like to leave a legacy and the sprinkling of the amount of resources they give in our warehouse or family as the building we're standing in is because of the generosity of the warehouse or family and so many others that have gone before us and some people in this room that have been philanthropic in their approach. And while it may seem self-serving to have something named after yourself when it comes to a scholarship or a building or whatever, I think that's a great example for others to see the philanthropy work. And I think it's just simply not just being, I get to have a pat on the back, although that doesn't hurt. I think it's the fact of being, you know, uh, being an example for others to follow in that, in that example. Certainly the recognition, as I mentioned before, I can share with you amazing stories of families that are very humble in their approach, but when it comes to being recognized by their university or their uh, civic group or whatever they might be doing or what good cause they might do, having recognition is, is a great thing. For those of us that give to our churches, obviously there's not much recognition except from just what we receive from our Lord and Savior, but when it comes to recognition, you know, but in the Whitworth University environment, guess what? We get to be in a different club level or different recognition or to name buildings or whatever that can certainly add to that recognition. And supporting the cause of which, obviously, we know what that's about, whether it be a scholarship for students or whether it be an institution of a different type. So the benefits of giving, let's go down that path. So as this slide says, that we have now tax reform that's putting great risk to many of the small charities that are dependent upon that $100, $500, $1,000-a-year donor, and they might be able to itemize their taxes. But as we know, we have double the personal exemptions. So because we have this additional tax benefit below with, without having to itemize, what will happen in, in the respect to that? And there's a big concern about the communities as what to do with that. We'll cover more of that when we get to the tax challenges and what's happening in the tax world in a minute. The capital gains tax rate is still very much alive and well. One of the benefits of tax reform is they didn't touch the capital gains world. So for many people that are giving appreciated securities to their uh, charities, you can give your Apple stock that is now $180 a share, and you might have bought it for $10 a share, and you can give that generous gift and still get a tax deduction for the full amount and still not uh, you know, worry about the capital gains tax that's there. So those brackets are still 20% or higher, depending on what you might be as far as your overall uh, gross income. Or 15% is the more common uh, capital gains rate for most average Americans. But still, that's a generous tax break if you have appreciated assets that you might want to give to charity. So there's still the capital gains tax rate that I think is very powerful for clients to give. When it comes to plan giving, I'll talk about that in a minute. Giving appreciated assets in a planned gift arrangement is really powerful for those that have been blessed with having assets that have appreciated that might lead to a planned gift of some kind. We'll cover some examples of that. So the Washington State Inheritance Tax Deduction. Um, we all know that the federal exemption for estate taxes has gone to well over a million, $11 million. And I'm not sure how many $11 million people are in the room today, probably not many. If they are, raise their hand and Holly will be in touch with you. So, um, so that has certainly excluded those individuals that might be Idaho residents or residents of other states that are coupled with the federal um, uh, state tax rules, but Washington State and Jay Ensley has a different plan Washington State has an exemption of just over $2 million, or for a couple, just over $4 million, which is certainly going to be a bigger piece of the economic pie in our society as to how many people might have over $2 million in their estate if they're single, or if they're not, good, not done good planning, might have you know, $4 million or more in their estate, and they want to begin to think about what that estate tax is. In Washington State, that estate tax for Washington is about 20% over that $2 million number. And that can be pretty significant for the gap between $2 million and $11 million. That's a pretty big gap that still is subject to about a 20% tax. And so by giving money away through your estate plan is an important part, I think, of keeping your estate maybe below that $2 million threshold as we're talking about what might be important for families. So the required minimum distribution. You're going to have me talk about this several times tonight. So those of you that are over 70 and a half, 
which let me see a show of hands of who those who are over 70 and a half years of age. So two or three of you in the room. So for those of you that don't know that magic term called RMDs, or required minimum distribution, RMDs are what's required by the IRS for you to take out of your pre-tax retirement account, like an IRA account, 401k, 403b, any of those pre-tax deferred retirement accounts. And you either have to take out that minimum amount, and it's a crazy schedule, about 3.5% when you're 70.5, and that number gets to be a higher number as you get older, is there's been a rule now out for about seven years that has allowed you to, instead of taking that required minimum distribution to yourself, to make that gift direct to the university or to the charity of your choice. doesn't matter which 501c3 charity you have. And amongst the advisor community, this um, is one of the great still intact tax benefits for those that have a philanthropic interest that might not, might, that might not otherwise be able to deduct their charitable deduction by having that required minimum distribution go directly to the charity and not have it be included in your taxable income. So I think, Don, you were asking about the required minimum distribution, I think, and so if there was ever a time, if you have pre-tax retirement accounts and have not been fully using your required minimum distribution to fulfill your philanthropic gift, now and into the future will be the time to make those gifts through your retirement, through the required minimum distribution RMD. Now, most accountants are very good at that, um, about reminding you to do that, but they're looking in the rearview mirror. I mean, they're looking at you after January 1st, in February, March, and they're asking you in the retrospect, did you make a gift? Well, it's too late then if you've already made that, if you haven't made that gift yet. So you can't go back and say, well, let's do a do-over. There's no do-overs in the required minimum distribution because you have to take out the required minimum distribution no matter what. So it may sound like it may be a, a non, well, if I take the required minimum distribution, make the gift anyway, isn't that a trade-off? It never has been a trade-off, an equal trade-off. And you can ask any accountant, they'll tell you, no, it's not a trade-off. And even more of a disparity now between, because of the tax reform, to, you don't want that income into your, into your taxable income. You want to give that to charity uh, because of the benefits of the, of the tax benefits you'll receive and not being able to deduct some of those assets. Again, we'll get to the tax benefits in a minute here on that. Good question. Yeah, so for some clients who have a TIAA CREF account, let's say, and so for those that might be on an automatic payment plan where they're automatically getting their disbursements that satisfies their required minimum distribution, because I'm kind of touching on that. So if for some clients who all of their income or a majority of their income besides Social Security might be from TIAA-CREF or from some other retirement account type plan where you're taking out this monthly withdrawal and you can't stop it or it's not very flexible in respect to how do I stop that or redirect that. So it really, if, if, there's, if there's still a philanthropic approach, and I'll use an example. Let's say I'm taking out $100,000 a year out of my retirement account. And let's say that's way more than my required minimum distribution, which say maybe is totally $20,000. So you can still separate out the amount that's required and send the $20,000. And let's let me go back to my example. So you took $100,000, didn't you write a check to the charity for 20 grand or 20% of your income? You're being more than philanthropic. You're being over generous in your respect in my example. And you say, well, gosh, could I be smarter in how I'm giving my gifts? Because if you turn around and make that gift to the university or to the charity, and you say, I'm not getting as much of a deduction for that break. Is there another way to do it? So separating out that required minimum distribution and have that money go directly from the custodian, TIAA-CREF, let's say, to Whitworth or the church or wherever, and take the $80,000 as income you need to live on, because that's all you need to live on. You're, not, you're going to give the other 20 grand away anyway, right? So separate that out. The, the custodian, TIAA-CREF, American Funds, Schwab, Vanguard, will separate that out for you to let the RMD go right to the charity. So you just have to go back to the custodian and do some cleanup there. It doesn't become a part of your income. Your 1099 comes to you as only 80 grand instead of 100 grand. So it becomes very smart in that way. But the custodians are weird. You know, you have to be, sometimes custodians only want to have, well, I'll let you pick one charity instead of several charities. I think the most we've given away in one year is 20 charities. The smallest gift of the charities was like $110. It's like, oh my gosh, a forum for $110 to break out the RMD to Vanessa Behan or whatever it was. It just was nuts. But we took care of that. And that's, but some custodians say you get 
They don't want to go through that much paperwork. They want to say, you get, Don, you get one charity to use your RMD. So you have to kind of manage that somewise if the, if the charity is not going to play well with you. Some are getting better, but just to be aware that you can work, work with the advisor there, Tia Craft or whoever you have there to kind of navigate that because there's no reason that you have to keep doing the way you're doing it if there's a better way to do it from a tax perspective. Yeah, great, great question. But I lost you. Hi. How you doing? So here's a question. How many of you have children? Most of you, except for a couple over here. You have different kind of children, don't you? Yes, yeah, so you do. Nieces and nephews and others. So how, how much is enough to give them? Have you guys figured out that number? How, have you come up with a number yet? How much is enough? John, how much is that number, John? Have you come up with a number? Whatever is fair. That's a, that's a, you cheat. You're cheating. How many else? Who's got a number in their head? How much they want to leave their kids? Everything? Everything, Scott? You're going to give everything to the kids? Okay. So I think, and I think adding a philanthropic component to an estate plan, which I'm always surprised that it's not more common. For those that are tithers, that are giving regularly to their church or to their, or to their university or to their charitable causes, but yet they go to their estate plan and say, well, we're going to leave it all to the kids. And you say, well, what, what about the charities you support? You don't want to leave them something in the will? Well, we're giving them through their lifetime, and that's all fine. But for many charities, especially for churches, not to, dis, you know, not to discredit Whitworth, but for a lot of churches, if you're giving them 1000 bucks a month, let's say, and all of a sudden you die off the vine and you're gone, they're going to lose that 1000 bucks a month. So to try to endow that gift in some fashion I think is very important. And the same thing is true, obviously, for Whitworth or other charitable causes to to consider a philanthropic tithe through your estate plan. Now, it may seem like you're double dipping or you're giving some of that inheritance away to, to family, but I think considering how much kids should receive, and they're, they're not worthy of it, are they? I mean, are they really worth it? They're not worthy. I mean, if you have anything left, I mean, use it all up, right? And if you can't use it all up, then, oh, of course they are. They're brilliant. There's no, there's a couple of millennials in the room. Without, did they all leave? No, we got one here. No, they all one here. <laughs> it's deceiving, yes. All right. So certainly how much is enough and what's the right amount, I think, is certainly the balancing act that's there. Obviously, you've heard Warren Buffett talk about, you know, that balance between I want enough, I want to give them enough to get them an edge in life, a foothold, an opportunity, but not so much that it screws them up. And I know I've seen my share of families that have gotten screwed up by that trust baby who just has way more, money than they sh way more money than they should have, and they just don't take a responsibility for it all, and it's, and it's sad in those circumstances. But it's hard to know how much that is in that process. Now, this slide is uh, an interesting slide from the standpoint that I find a lot of families don't have that philanthropic discussion. How do we impart tithing or... Whitworth or any university that our children may have gone to and to have the philanthropic talk with those families. Uh, when I find families have the conversation and begin to build that relationship about tithing, if it's, if it's a magic situation where they seem like they are bonding, are bonding with that common cause, now sometimes it might be um, a common event that may have occurred. You know, it's like Jim and Linda Hunt with the Krista Foundation. I mean, that's a you know, it certainly is a, bound, a, bond, a bonding moment for the whole family to understand the Krista Foundation. I think all of you are aware of that whole organization, what they're about, because of a death of a child. And so for the siblings and everybody in the family, they kind of bond because of that of the common event. But not everybody goes to Whitworth. Not everybody goes to the same church. Some people do different things. And so I think having the philanthropic conversation, especially if you're going to give money away at your end of your life, and they're surprised about that at the end of your day, they may not come and visit your gravesite. They may not like that at all. In fact, I find when I consult with a lot of philanthropic organizations and they have the battles, and it's usually because the, the donor didn't communicate to the kids, and all of a sudden they find themselves in a battle because they're all fighting over the same asset. Mom wanted to give that house to us, not Whitworth. How, how did you guys get it? You know, you must have coursed our parents somehow. You know, you guys are evil 
So I think involving the family is important, and certainly communicating about your generosity is, is key to, to know that there won't be surprises. We require that when it comes to families that are really making generous gifts to include that conversation so they're not surprised. Yes? Very true. Uh, those, are wide, those are wise words. I have one of my most generous uh, clients who's uh, a couple that are both Washington State University uh, professors. And they're both now retired in their uh, early 80s and both slowing down quite a bit now. But years ago, like 30 years ago, they said to their daughter, they only had one daughter, says, you've gotten everything you're going to get. There's no more money that's going to come to you. So plan accordingly from, from her standpoint. And they have become the most, they've become literally the most generous uh, staff and alum, uh, faculty members to give to Washington State University. And they're very proud of that fact that they've kind of set that example for their colleagues and professors on the university. Um, and their daughter has totally accepted that and understands that, and that's been fine with them. But that's become, but because she knew early on that that she's on with her life and she's got well set. They gave her education, gave her money, gave her what she did, and then she was here. You you heard their boat was launched. And for many of us, that seems very strange because it just seems like they're entitled to some money. Those little ingrates. So the power of plan gifts. Now, some of you may have plan gifts in place, and plan gifts have a variety of, of of a variety of different ways to, to talk about that. Bequests are the most common. And because you can make a provision in your will to add Whitworth or the church or whatever into your estate plan and say, I want to leave this amount of money to these charities in your will. And it's revocable. You can change it anytime you want to. It's simple. It doesn't cost any money. It's simply waiting in the wings. Sometimes it's if both husband and wife are dead, then some money will go there instead of at the first passing. That's, uh, that's pretty straightforward. I, I cannot stress the importance of, of this slide for those clients that have retirement accounts um, because I find it sometimes overlooked by the Scots and Hollies of the world. And when I talk to groups like this and certainly other professionals, I am just harping on this fact so much. So not only are beneficiaries Critically important just to know where your money is going to go. And I find it's a mistake all the time. You do all this stuff with creating an estate plan and figure out what you're going to do and all this stuff through your will or revocable living trust and all this stuff, but we forget to even update the beneficiaries on their retirement accounts or on your life insurance or annuities if you have those things. Beneficiary designations are typically non-probate assets. They will go directly to the individual or the charity without having to go through any courts, without going through anything. But the problem is you are in charge of the beneficiary designations. Not the attorney, not the family. You're the one in charge of writing that form. And it is so simple to fix and so simple to screw up. Because if you don't have the right name on that beneficiary designation, the custodian of that account has the legal obligation to give that money to that ex-spouse to that defunct charity, to that estranged child, to the dead child, if you have one, if that's the case, I'm sorry. You know, it'll, that is their obligation to give the money to that named beneficiary, a legal obligation. That's the custodian's job. Now, for my clients that are business owners or have decent income, they get the power of this next statement. So let's talk about this for a minute. So let's say I'm in the 35% tax bracket, and I get to defer through my income into a tax-deferred retirement account. I pay no tax on that money. So 100% of my 15,000 or 21,000 or whatever goes into that account, in that pre-tax account, it gets the benefit of growing tax-deferred for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, it is the power of compound interest that is just magic. And then at the end of my life, when I tell that client, you've had all this tax-deferred growth, never had to pay a nickel of tax on it, and guess what? If you give it to your kids, it'll be added to your estate tax, as well as, so 20% or 40% if you're at the highest levels, and they'll have to pay income tax on it as well. So it could be as much as a 60%, 80% haircut right out of the gate to give to the kids. But what if you give it to charity like Whitworth or the church or United Way or whoever, they pay zero tax on that money. So a small amount of contribution, tax-deferred growth, tax-free contribution to the, to, the, to the charity. So in that respect, if we have pre-tax retirement accounts 
Everything I said about the wills and all that stuff and leaving an estate and a bequest through the wills, scratch all that out. Says I'm going to use my retirement account as my giving instrument because of the power of tax-deferred growth, and I'm leveraging dollars in a very, very significant way. I'm going to take pause and see if that sunk in. Any questions on that topic? I find it so rare, so rare when I talk to clients, even high net worth clients that have $2 million or more in their retirement accounts, and they kind of scratch their head, well, they, but they've been taught all these years, well, as for my kids, they get the benefit of that. But they don't want that benefit because of something even more powerful we'll talk about later called step up and cost basis. Your kids will want to have tax-free assets, like a Roth IRA, if you have any of those things, or property, or a stock that is in a normal joint or individual investment account. The step up in cost basis is a magic world. And you know what? Your kids will visit your grave every day if you give them tax-free money. Tax-free money is a really powerful thing. If you give the charity the tax-free stuff they should have gotten, and you give them the, pre, the pre-tax stuff that they have to pay tax on, again, they may never visit your grave. Not that it's all about the visiting the grave. So charitable gift annuities. Does anybody in the room here have a charitable gift annuity? Has anybody even heard of a charitable gift annuity? So this is also a magic land for some individuals. If you're over 75 years old, and I know that's not many people in the room, but as you're hitting over 70, 75 years of age, imagine having guaranteed interest of over 7.5% income. Now, I can't say guaranteed in 7.5% very often in my practice. I don't know about you, but that's like almost malpractice if I say guaranteed in 75 in the same sentence because there is no such thing. You have to give the money away to the charity, but if I have appreciated assets that might have a 20% capital gains buried somewhere in the meat, whether it be real estate or Apple stock, or I was an initial investor in this thing called um, Amazon. You guys ever heard of Amazon? You've heard of that company? So if you have highly appreciated assets and you give that asset the stock or the property to Holly, you pay no capital gains tax, and depending on what your age is, because it's based upon your age, and she'll start sending you a check for 7.5% of that money on the whole darn thing with no taxes. And guess what? A bunch of us can be tax-free to you on the 7.5%. You know, I'm, I, you know I, I, I'm not on the philanthropic side of the table anymore, but when I talk to clients about that, are you sure, they say? Well, you have to give it away, so no more Amazon stock. It's going to say goodbye. But you get to lock in the value, which is pretty cool, be able to have that 7.5% guaranteed income. And for people that are nervous about the world of investments and where the world might be going, I mean, they're not, they're, you know, what a magic world is to turn 7.5% on if they're at that age bracket. Now, I'm not sure what it is when you're 94 years old, but I think it's higher than 7.5%. 9.5%. No wonder Stacy's sitting next to you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's a magic world, the charitable gift annuity. Now, if, well, that's why I started the whole, that's why I started our conversation off this evening with, if you have the philanthropic gene, for some reason there's like the fountain of youth, you don't seem to ever die, so that's what happens. As much as when they have their staff meetings in the foundation and they say, that is true. <laughs> I love that. So charitable trusts are a similar creature to the charitable gift annuities uh, where there is a way to have, um, it it doesn't have the word guaranteed as much in that language, although there are some types of trusts that have kind of a subtle, what I call asterisks or in quotation guarantee or a certainty. But trusts are a little more flexible when it comes to certain types of assets. Holly's not going to be real happy if, I, if you send to her a piece of property, you want to, like a piece of real estate, you want to put into a charitable gift annuity. Now, she'll take Amazon stock every day of the week when it comes to a charitable gift annuity. But if you come in with an office building in downtown Spokane or downtown Seattle, say, I want to put this into a charitable gift annuity. She's going to scratch her head and go to the gift acceptance committee, and they're going to want to scrutinize that up and down. 
but the charitable trust, they'll put it in that thing every day of the week and even keep the property in the in trust. They'll keep it in there, and if it's income producing without debt, can still be a pretty cool deal and still have the tax deferred, uh, you know, the tax savings on the capital gains and all that goes into the plan gift that goes in place there. So life estate, if you have a piece of real estate that you want to occupy and maintain, but you want to have a good, but you want that property to eventually go to the university, then you can give the money, give that property to Whitworth and stay in the house. And at the end of your life or when you move out, the, the asset goes to the charity. All right, we're going to leave this world. Now we get to go to the fun part. All right. So there are several things in regards to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. In fact, if you listed the whole name of it, it'd be about 25 words. You can't even put it on. There's no acronym that even fits. So it's not like TEDRA or there's just no name. So we, the, the simple short term is called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Now, wasn't it fun watching the debate and drama going on last year when that was all going on? and what was taking place there. So, uh, Kathy, you were talking earlier today, you saw an advertisement in the, on the news or on the TV the other day about some CPA that says, all of us, we've been screwed. This is a big ripoff. There's no, there is no break. And I'm here to try to demystify that for all of us in our conversation today, okay? So, because there are some breaks for most Americans. Now, I'm just curious to see a little bit of an audience. I've got my notes here on some things I want to convey with, so I'm sitting behind the podium now. So how many of you completed your 2017 tax return? Like good faithful soldiers like we all are. So when you met with your accountant, most accountants are saying, if the income from 2017 is like it is in 2018, here will be your tax break. So how many, just give me some examples. Thumbs up, was it a good news? Good news for Holly. I see a nodding of head, good news, good news. Anybody have bad news? Nobody knows. You don't have an accountant. You use TurboTax and they didn't tell you. So I would say that probably the vast majority of Americans are going to get a tax break, but it's going to depend on the facts of the circumstance. So let's see here. Let's see what I got on here. So let's do the, tax, let's do the estate tax first. I'll take my notes with me so I can see what I'm looking at here. So the federal tax starts at $11,200,000 in Washington State is at $2,193,000. So the federal estate tax doubled in value. So it has never been as high except for one year, 2005, when it was zero, or 2011, excuse me, when it was zero, you could be Warren Buffett and not pay any taxes. But there was a problem. You had to die that year. So that was kind of the complexity there as you had a time here demise pretty well. And there are actually some pretty funny stories about, you know, December deaths that took place that year that seemed a little suspicious. But nevertheless... $11 million, or if it's a couple, $22 million is a lot of money. So many people don't have that worry. And as I said earlier, the Washington State has that break. So the annual gift tax exclusion. So this is the amount we can give to any one individual. Many of you know this, probably do this already. With some of your planning, if you want to make a gift to any one person, $15,000 compared to $14,000 last year. So a husband and wife can give $15,000 away times two, 30,000. So if I have two kids, I can give 60,000 away to my kids. And it could be anybody. And just so you get the spelling of my last name correctly, it's V as in Victor, I-R-E-N. And I will take checks and cash. I don't take American Express. So 529 college savings plans uh, are also got an enhancement this uh, go around. Now the the 529 plans, if you have any state plan, you now get the privilege of taking the money out for any educational purpose, K through 12, as well as for post, uh, for college and for postgraduate work, if that's the case. Now, I created this slide because the Washington GET program, which many of you may have participated in or been a part of, the GET program has been broken for the last three or so years. It is, coming, it is being resurrected like Lazarus out of the grave on June 1st. We don't know what the rules will look like June 1st because they're coming out with a new plan in, in uh, Washington State as of June 1st. If you have any get credits for your family that are still hanging around, it's important to pay very close attention to emails and communication you're getting from the state of Washington's get program 
to make sure you're taking advantage of that. Or if you have clients, I think for, for Holly and Scott, I would certainly encourage you or admissions, I mean, if you're not on the top of this, because a lot of your students come through GET, I'm assuming, I don't know how much money comes through GET, but it's, there's magic money coming down the pike there. It's free money, additional money, but you have to plan carefully, and the window will be a short window starting, I think, July, June 1st, and will close, I think, September 15th. So, so if you're not on top of that, that is critical for the university. So I'm not sure what communication I have internally within the college or university. I would, you know, I would, I would talk to Beck or whoever and say, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with the GET program? I'd get that education out there big time, especially for, for parents. I'm not sure if you have GET program, GET credits or not, but a huge benefit for, for that from the state of Washington's perspective. And that's brand new just as of the last few weeks. I mentioned to Don the whole charitable rollover benefit. You can give to as, as much as $100,000 or your required minimum distribution, whichever is less. And that direct rollover is a key benefit, as I mentioned earlier, so I won't belabor that point unless there's questions. Uh, the capital gains tax rate, as I mentioned before, is still 15 or 20%. There is a 0% bracket for some individuals. Uh, and for some folks, I had a client that, you know, you guys have heard Seattle has a crazy real estate market. That's probably an understatement. We had a client that moved back to Spokane here um, this late last year, and they sold their little modest Green Lake home for over a million dollars that had no garage, had three bedrooms and two baths, and it was just like they'd, and they bought it for 75000 30 years ago or some crazy number. And so but they had all this appreciation because you only get a half million dollars if you're husband and wife, so they had everything above a half million bucks was a subject of capital gains tax. And they're worried about having to pay this capital gains tax. And so we navigated their income to, to, to suppress the other income. So guess what, they had, a, I'll make the number around numbers. They had a half a million dollars exposed to a 20% tax theoretically that would have been a $100,000 bill. They ended up coming up with zero capital gains tax. Because if your income is real low, social security or pensions or IRA withdrawals, if your income is real low, $50,000 for a couple, not that low. You pay zero capital gains tax. So it was like, their miles were open. I mean, they just, they remodeled their new house in Spokane. They're just thrilled. I mean, it's just great to have them here, but it's becoming a bigger and bigger challenge when it comes to that. So, deductions. So, you can still get a deduction for current values of assets if you're giving money away, but the deductions are one of the big challenges for the tax reform. Because if you itemize your taxes and looking for those deductions, that world is changing drastically. So let's go through some of those numbers in more detail. So let me get behind the, my podium here so I can put some of this stuff down and go through this with you. So on the top line, as we know, is healthcare expenses are deductible up to a certain threshold. You have to have a certain income to be able to and a certain amount of medical expenses. So for those that have a lot of expenses on healthcare costs, this is a really, really important tax cut that is gonna be powerful to people. So where it was before on the deductions for medical expenses, it was for people who are 65 and a half with seven and a half percent of your AGI. If you have over seven and a half percent, you can deduct all of it. In 2018, it's still to 7.5. Next year, for all Americans, it'll be 10%. So that's a big, and for some people that are high medical expense users and are deducting those expenses, especially if you're in a nursing home or having expenses that might be for treatments of certain types of disease, you have to now have a quantum leap. Now they're 2.5% to get, get a break on your taxes. So medical expenses are a, are a, are a bad problem. The home mortgage deductions. So HELOCs are gone. So if you have a home equity line of credit, and if it's been put into place this year or next future years, there's no deductions for HELOCs. So the magic world of being able to take money out of your retirement, out of your mortgage and use it for any purpose is gone. So I'm not sure if I have many people in the room in this audience that are using HELOCs. I know for my Seattle clients that want to tap into all that equity in their house to, go, to pay for college education, to pay for the new boat, to take the trip to Timbuktu or to do whatever, to buy the second vacation home. HELOCs are disappearing uh, as far as a deductible expense. So that becomes a real problem. 
So probably the biggest one for states not like Washington State, because what do we not have in Washington State is an income tax, correct? We have sales tax. We have property tax. All of those taxes we pay, and if we lived in Idaho, and what's Arizona's income tax? But you're not Arizona residents, are you? So that doesn't matter to you guys. But if you're a California resident, it's, it's, it was the, from, from the political perspective, it was the red states or the president's approach to try to get at the blue states. Those coastal states, California through Washington, New York on down to almost Florida, all those democratic states that have state income tax, their cap on that deduction is $10,000. So imagine if you're a satellite and $10,000 is a good start for property taxes over there, right? Plus sales tax, plus other things, 10,000 is the most you can contribute, the most you can get a deduction for. So that is a huge change. And so for those states that have a high income tax like California, they're scrambling big time. Now some states are trying to be creative. In fact, two states on the East Coast are saying, well, we're gonna call it a charitable deduction instead of a tax, that you're gonna make a charitable gift to the state of Virginia or whatever. I'm not sure if that'll fly in the ultimate end of the day, but that's gonna be, uh, be different. If your mortgage is over $750,000, which I can't even imagine a $750,000 mortgage, then you can't deduct anything above 750 is not allowed, even if it's, even if it's, uh, even if the interest rate is whatever the number is, if your mortgage is more than 750, you're capped at 750. So there are some limitations. So let's now go to the challenge of, of, uh, I'm gonna skip past this real quick. So before I leave that, I'm gonna go back to just the, the standard deduction. And the idea of the tax reform is to make life simpler. The original plan that the House had sent to the Senate and to float up says we're gonna go from seven brackets down to three, how simple that would be. But unfortunately in that case, the 15% bracket stayed 15%. The 37% tax bracket went down to 20. All of those, in the, all of the Democrats said there's no way on God's green earth we're gonna let this pass. Even some of the Republicans said there's not gonna happen, ever. So simplification didn't happen. We went from seven to the three. Guess what, we're back to seven. So we made no real progress there. Now did the, did the, did the brackets go down a little bit? The 15% bracket, 15% bracket. So no break for the, for the poor. Now the income brackets changed a little bit in that respect. So that's, I guess, a helpful tool. But the, the amount of difference that really is gonna make for people is an average of 2% reduction in their taxes. And 2% is enough, not enough to make any change at all. The goal in the Tax Act was not to give the average American <clears throat> a lower income tax bracket. They funded, they funded it in two ways. That you double your personal exemption, almost double your personal exemption, to where you're now getting this higher ability to not have to deduct at all, anything. You, you don't have to itemize at all because you get the benefit of having um, a, higher itemize, a higher personal exemption when you go through that uh, tax reform. Now, if you have kids, now, Kathy, you have children, you have dependent kids, so if you have your kids still on the front page of your tax reform, one of the original, the part of the original act was that we're going to get rid of the child deduction, no more child credit, and as that went through the House and Senate and they figure out where that's going to work, they didn't just get rid of it, they actually doubled the exemption for families. So every child has actually had more deductions for children than you had before because the child tax credit is doubled than what it was before from a thousand to two grand. So for those, and Kathy's smiling now because she's like, this is cool, I had no idea. It's too old. Well, maybe get them smaller, maybe get them back in the house. So if your families, if they're families that have children that are dependents, there's still a break there for them to have that benefit as well. So when it comes to corporate tax rates, the Jobs Act was all about corporate tax rates. <clears throat> the idea was that if you're a small business making widgets, we're gonna give you a 20% tax break right out of the gate. I mean, a 20% tax break is a huge, huge deal for, for companies that are there that have, that have been paying more taxes. Now I think you were saying you have a small business. 
Now, if you're a sole proprietor, and I'll just pretend that Cindy's a contractor, and she likes putting windows in houses. I don't know what you do, Cindy. Maybe you do windows in houses. I'm making this up. So you, because you're in the business of trying to create something, even if you're by yourself, you're going to get a 20% tax break. 20% tax break is a huge deal across the board. Now, there are some challenges when it comes to non, um, the special deductions when it comes to taxes. It's called miscellaneous deductions. Miscellaneous deductions, which includes CPA preparation, thank you, CPA preparation fees, fees for the financial advisor, attorney's fees, any of those fees that are out there that we have to pay, and un unreimbursed employee expenses, any of that stuff we can kind of put on the item, on the, on the miscellaneous itemized deductions, they're all gone. Zero deductions for that. So where it, except for if you're a teacher, in other words, anomaly, if you're a teacher, they preserved the miscellaneous, miscellaneous itemized deductions for teachers because there's such a huge lobby for teachers. They get, to kept, they get to keep their $250 annual maximum on uh, miscellaneous deductions for expenses for the classroom. So, Jim, you're in good shape from that standpoint. So for business owners, and it really depends on what kind of business you're in and how much income you could drive from your business, but for small business owners or medium-sized business owners or manufacturers like Travis Industries or Travis Pattern down the street that makes tons of stuff and sends it all over the world, I mean, those companies, because they're adding jobs to their portfolio, they're getting a huge tax break. Now, that may seem like it's giving to the wealthy, but it's adding jobs. I mean, that's the whole idea about it to be in the Jobs Act. And so that's one of the real benefits of the tax reform. Now, let me see what other magic things like. Oh, this is about the funniest one. So how many of you have been married for more than, let's say, 20 years? How many are having their 41st anniversary today? Yay, Terry and Steve. How many of you contemplated divorce? I don't hear any laughter now. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So one of the weird anomalies of the law that got passed, not to put any, plant any seeds in your mind, so up, and, up through this year, alimony for a spouse. So if I tell Beth, Beth, it's been a great year, it's been a great run, we're getting married, it'll be 40 years for Paul and Beth here this weekend, so we're, we're excited about that. But if I tell Beth after our 40th wedding anniversary trip that we're not going to stay married, and I have to give her alimony checks as of this year and for the past years, I could deduct that amount I give to her on my taxes, and she would have to include that in her income. January 1st of 2018 or 19, I don't get to deduct it, and she doesn't have to claim it. That is a huge thing. We expect the divorce courts to be filled with all kinds of activities this year because of the tax breaks that are going to sunset at the end of this year. I didn't realize that until just recently, that that was one of, the, one of the crazy things. So what else did I miss here? Okay. I think that's primarily it. <clears throat> so if you are a small business owner and have not looked at it more carefully as far as expenses and what this can be benefiting those clients, or if you have clients that are that are small business owners, I would certainly spend very good attention to their accountants and making sure they're seeing their accountants to navigate that, that world. It is, some, some people have said, well, I'm gonna switch from an S corporation to a C corporation or to an LLC or to different entities. It doesn't matter. It really does not make any difference. The idea was not to switch people's entities from C corporations to S or LLCs or any of those corporate entities. And I know this audience isn't really small business owners primarily, but it doesn't matter in the world of the of the Job Tax Act. Now, how many of you have heard of the step-up in cost basis? Is that a current term that people are familiar with what that is? Should I describe that again so people understand what it is? Would that be helpful? So we have one daughter, Shauna is her name. And let's say we give her a portfolio when we retire that's worth a million dollars. And let's say we paid for the investments of that. Let's say it was all Amazon stock, and we paid $10,000 for that million-dollar portfolio. So if Paul and Beth don't make it back from our 40th anniversary trip across the pond in the next few weeks, and we 
are not here, she does not have to pay any capital gains tax upon our death because there's a step up in cost basis to the date of our death. So she can then sell the stock at the end of her life, at the end of our lives, and not pay any income tax or any capital gains tax, excuse me. If we give her the stock before we get on the plane, and now it's her asset, and she goes to sell it, depends on where her income tax bracket is. Remember the whole zero, remember the Seattle house and the whole capital gains thing? So if it's above, if her income is above that, it could be 15 to 20% capital gains tax to have the seller, to sell the Amazon stock in my example. So the step up in cost basis is one of the most magical tools in the world. So it doesn't matter what kind of property, it could be a real estate, it could be, a, it could be an apartment building, it could be Amazon stock, it could be anything. It cannot be retirement accounts, it cannot be annuities, it cannot be life insurance. It's only gonna be assets that are held in a joint account of some kind, okay? Questions on that? So step up in cost base is a big deal. No, it will still be included in your estate does not avoid probate, but avoids taxes. Probate's not to be scared of, taxes are to be scared of. All right, we're gonna switch gears and do the estate, the current estate planning overview. Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna harp on this audience a little bit because I find that this is where the weakest part of the conversation usually is with, with clients. So making sure that we have current documents in place that make most sense. So the first thing I'm gonna talk about is revocable living trusts or wills. Now, you'll see in the paper about once a week a full page ad by Raul Moulton that says, here's your plan to do the revocable living trust. And he'll feed you a nice meal, just like what Holly and Scott and Stacy did this evening. And they'll promote the idea of a revocable living trust. Most attorneys, in fact, the vast majority of attorneys I work with said a revocable living trust is a waste of money and time. I will never have a revocable living trust because Washington State is such an easy state to die in. We don't have the onerous probate laws. We don't have the onerous challenges that many states were to be. Now, if we were sitting in San Francisco or Tucson, Arizona, we'd have a different conversation because every one of my clients in those two states that have high probate expenses that are mandated by the state, it's like a state tax that they charge the states that don't have revocable living trust. Every one of my clients that resides in those states has a revocable living trust. So let's talk about what a will does first so you can kind of see what that is. A will does several things. A will is to appoint people to take care of your affairs. So I'm going to pick on you too because you asked the question. So you're going to appoint each other as your executor or your what's called a, a person representative to your estate. <clears throat> and if you'll have a backup to that person, usually a child or an attorney or someone that will be the backup to each other, right? Does that make sense? In the revocable living trust world, it's no different. You'll have each other be the trustees and you'll have a backup trustee. Same, same idea. We'll just change the word from trustee to executor. No change there at all. The will will also appoint if you're have young children, will appoint guardians for your children in case they're under age 14 or under age 21. The weird thing about 14, at age 14, the state of Washington says the children has a say in where they might stay and it isn't just age 21 or 18, depending on how you set that up. So guardianship is a big deal when it comes to wills because you want to, who's going to be the guardian for our children if they're young? The will will also have a very powerful tool called a testamentary trust. Now it's called a testamentary trust because it's a trust that lives inside my last will and testament that will only spring to life if certain facts occur. So let's use Paul and Beth as an example. Also, I'll take it away from you for a minute. So our daughter, Shauna, is 31 years old, getting married this year. We're thrilled about her getting married this fall. And so if Paul and Beth will make it from our trip here in the next few weeks, a trust will spring forth out of our will saying, because Shauna's not of a certain age yet, we're going to put a majority of the assets into trust for her benefit until she gets to be a certain age. So the trust simply sits in waiting. And at that point, becomes an irrevocable trust upon our death. So remember, the revocable means I can change it, do anything like that. A testamentary trust is always irrevocable, which means you can't change it. And so the rules of the, of the trust for our daughter is 
She can get income for the trust. She can have money for education. She can have money for healthcare costs. She can have money for expenses. But she can't touch the corpus of that trust until she hits 35 and 40 years of age when that money would be dribbled out to her in the lump sums when she gets to be a certain age.